Hey, everybody. This is Stephen French from the 10 to 12 podcast. Like all good union workers, we're out right now using our negotiated vacation time. So we're unable to bring you original content this week, but we've put together a little best of show. Hope you enjoy it. Membership engagement is all about understanding why it's good to be in a union, what the union does for you. So let's talk about that today. What does the union do for you as a union member? When you work in a non-union environment, it's basically the employer is the dictator and they set all the regulations, the wages, schedules, discipline, promotions, everything like that. And the workers have little to no say over it. Yeah, so I I say it all the time, right? We can talk about, and we will talk about wages and benefits and all that stuff. But but for me, as a thirty plus year union worker, for me, it's about having a voice in the workplace. Me too, right? It, it that that's what being in a union Very is all important. about. So so having that voice in the workplace, and and how does that manifest itself? How do we have a voice in the workplace? I mean, together, our voice is a lot louder, and that's. I mean, that's the basis of a union. It's we're all in this together. We belong. Yep. And and so with with a union supporting you, with a union protecting you, you have more confidence to voice your concerns yes. in the workplace. Right. Um, but even beyond that, the structure of a union says that through the union, an employee has a say in negotiating workplace contracts, right? Yes. The union will will negotiate a contract that includes all those things, details about work expectations, wages, schedules, disciplines, promotions, all of that stuff, right? So we have a say in that as workers um, through our union, through the bargaining power of our union. So bargaining power and having that voice in the workplace is a really important thing. Um, Wages are obvious, I think. That anyone who who thinks about union work understands that union workers make more money yeah. than non-union workers, right? And we get our raises on a regular interval instead of, oh, you have to go ask the boss for a raise. Or, you know, you're hoping to get a, a review this year and get a raise. But when you have that contract, it's set right, right in there and... You get the raise when the contract says. Yeah, yep. and on, on average, union employees make thirty percent more than non-union workers. That's amazing. It's and and from from what I read, it's to the tune of like two hundred bucks a week. Yeah. So yeah. you think about what what you pay in dues over the course of a year. You're making that back. Yeah, two hundred dollars a week is help me with math because I'm not terrible with math. That's uh, times fifty two is that's like ten grand. Am I wrong? Jason's got his calculator out. <laughs> That's like, I think, like $10,000 a 10, year. $10,400. Yeah. $10,000 a year more because you're in a union. And that's on average, right? That's yeah. the average wage increase f- for being a union member. Um, so here at Local 1150, I can tell you that we're above that average, right? So yeah. we're we're making more than the average union worker in the United States. We're on the high end of, of that calculation. So um, 30% more, 200 bucks a week more on average 
wages are just higher, right? Because we have that bargaining power because we can go and and like Vinny said, we don't have to ask for raises. The the union negotiates raises into our contract. So so let's talk about us at local 1150 at Sikorsky Aircraft. We get annual wage increases, yes. right? General wage increases. Yes. And we get periodic bumps in our pay every 15, 15 weeks. weeks. Right, yep. so every fifteen weeks we we make more money. Yep. Yeah, another ten cents. Yep. So we don't have to go to the boss and say, "Hey, I'm doing a great job. Uh, can I have more money?" But that does happen too, right? People get merit raises yeah. where we are as well. And we also have a way to get promoted to make more money based on your seniority and how well you do the job. Yep. Sure. We've got job descriptions that lay out the path of progression for people to get promoted and ranges for people to be paid for the different jobs that they do. So it's all very well defined. Yeah, really important for people to understand that, right? Because if this is the first job you're coming into, it, it's not like this everywhere, yeah. right? You're, you're likely going into another job and you're going to do that job for the rest of your career there, however long that might be, right? Is it, is it a year? Is it two years? Is it five years? Is it, is it a career job, right? But you, your opportunity for advancement in a non-union job is not what it is in a union yeah, job. Absolutely. I think on a basic level, one of the, the main differences is that when you're in a union environment, you're protected by what's called just cause. They can't fire you for just any reason versus a non-union environment. You're an at-will employee, yeah. and they could just decide today that I don't like you, and you're gone today. Pretty much. And any job now that doesn't have a union in all 50 states is at-will. Yep. So our security and our power is derived from that. The at-will thing is, is something to really look at, to really explore, because I don't think people think about that. No, they don't. When, I don't think so either. Right. When they come into a job, they don't think about the idea that they're protected automatically. From day one, they're protected just by that concept, by the idea that in a union environment, the employer must prove just cause, must yeah. provide just cause for letting someone go. Uh, really at day 90. At, well, right. <laughs> at, in, uh, under our contract, yeah. it's, it's day 90, right? Yeah. You complete 90 days of employment and you're no longer an at-will employee. Yeah, I mean, we could get lost t talking about just cause for yeah. days, but one of the most important aspects of that is they have to treat everybody equally in terms yeah. of discipline. And we, we talk about that all the time, right? One of the things that I say to new members is, listen, if, if you break the rules, that doesn't mean that you don't get in trouble, right? The union's job is not to get you out of trouble when you get yourself into trouble. Yeah. So if you violate the rules of the company, if you don't uphold our end of the bargain as far as our collective bargaining agreement goes, you're going to get disciplined, yeah. right? And, and then our job changes. Our job as a union becomes making sure that the discipline you do receive is fair and equal and consistent with yeah. what's happened in the past. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that it's not necessarily our job to get you out of trouble, no. but it's to make sure that the company disciplines you fairly and, and equally. So for me, healthcare coverage is a big thing. Absolutely. And, and union workers across this country have more access to health benefits than non-union workers. Yeah, so 92% of union workers have job-related health coverage versus about 68% of non-union workers. 
So that's that's amazing, right? And and for me, even ninety two percent of union workers is low, right? So there's eight yeah. percent of us that don't have job related health coverage. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure how a union worker would not have access to health coverage, but that's a discussion for a different day for us to explore why that is. But maybe part time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, good point. O- only 68% of non-union workers have access to, to health coverage. That means that 32% of non-union workers in this country, which, by the way, is the, the larger group of workers in this country, 32% of them have no access to employer-provided health coverage. And, and when you think about things like hospitalization, prescription drugs, that's impossible to live with right? Prescription drugs alone. I know people who are on medications for debilitating diseases, and these medications cost $20,000, $40,000 a month. Damn. Right. It's crazy. So those folks, those 32% of other workers, that's not even a choice, right? If you're that person who who has a $40,000 a month medication bill you're not making a choice yeah right there is no choice to pretty make. much if you don't have coverage you're not getting that medication yeah. there's no one i know who has a job good enough to sustain that kind of of bill yeah so you're out of luck right and and you have this debilitating disease that you're you're at the mercy of that disease now so for me this might be the the biggest tangible benefit yeah right, to being a union worker. And most union workers can cover family members as well. This is something that is not well known, but a lot of those non-union workers who do have access to health coverage, they're not able to cover their families under their plan. This is only a plan for the employee themselves, right? And not in every case, but in, in some cases, they're only able to cover themselves. And that leaves, you know, spouses, children, uh, domestic partners out in the cold, right? Out to, to figure it out for themselves. So this is a big issue. The, the access to health coverage is a really big issue for unions. Um, and it's, it's a big one for us at, at Local 1150. It's something that you already heard Rocco on a previous episode of the podcast talk about that that health coverage even though we're a union with health coverage through our employer we're trying to do better right we're trying to get a better plan because we don't think our coverage is is up to where it should be around 1880 after essentially a depression in this country that was triggered by an 1873 stock market crash uh, there were lots of of worker advocate groups out there, unions out there, um, who started to push pretty heavily for an eight hour workday, um, and and the belief at the time was that shortening the workday to eight hours would reduce unemployment by spreading work among more people. Huh. Okay, that was the that was the idea of this yeah. was to get out of this depression, get out of this this economic downturn by increasing the workforce through reducing the workday. 
The spreading, yeah. spreading the wealth, basically. Yeah, exactly. So instead of instead of one guy working a sixteen-hour day, two people could yeah. work eight-hour days. Yep. Right. So this is where this is where the push came from, um, and and this this turned into uh, lots of strike activity from unions because, of course, business pushed back on it, saying, "Of course, you know, we don't we don't want to hire two people when we can hire one person." Yeah. They work right? them to death. Yeah. So um, strikes happen. Um, the establishment of uh, what was the name of the union? The Knights of Labor. Okay. The Knights of Labor were probably the biggest labor union in those days, in the late 1880s. Um, and they they started advocating for a national general strike in favor of the eight-hour workday. Wow. So this is something that's pretty foreign to us nowadays a national strike because we actually it have is. yeah we have we have contractual language and laws against these sympathy strikes yeah. so one industry can't strike in in sympathy of another so national strikes are something that don't happen in the United States anymore um it's a european thing now but um sometimes but they then, should <laughs> oh for sure sometimes they should. they should yes i agree more often so uh so this was the push, right, for a for a general strike um, for the eight hour workday, and and these groups actually got together and they established a deadline. They said May first, eighteen eighty six. This is the deadline. You give us the eight hour workday, or the national strike is coming. Right, everybody, every union worker in America yeah. is going to walk off the job. Yeah, and that was a big deal back then. Yeah. Right. The mantra that they used was eight hours of work eight hours of rest, and eight hours for what you will. I like that. Right? So split the day up into three eight-hour segments. Yeah. One of them was for work, one of them was for rest, and one of them was for, you know, leisure activity, whatever you yeah. wanted to do. Okay? A number of eight-hour strikes broke out ahead of time with almost a quarter of a million people participating nationwide. Yeah. So, so this was kind of unorganized, right? Yeah. It, it was it was organized but unorganized, right? Yeah. There were some rogue groups out there that said, "Hey, we're not waiting for May 1st. Yeah. We're we're going to we're going to go on strike." Yeah. Yeah. The heart of the 8-hour movement was in Chicago, where thousands had already won reduced hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, so so eight hours um, was kind of established in Chicago. It wasn't widespread, but okay. it was it was established. Um, and and I, I think it was May first. Yeah. Um, sorry, it was May first when ten thousand people went on strike just in Chicago alone. So ten thousand workers walked off the job when that when that May first deadline. Um, came about wow. and this was this was it's known now as May Day. May Day, yeah. So these folks went on on strike in Chicago. It was peaceful um until it wasn't. Yeah. Tensions between law enforcement and demonstra demonstrators escalated as the strikes continued into the following days. So on May third, all hell broke loose. Yeah. Right? What what happened on May third? At the uh, May 3rd action where unionists attacked men who had crossed the picket line, police opened fire, killing four demonstrators. Outrage over the killings triggered about 1,000 people to take to the streets that night. Remembered at the Haymarket Square rally also ended in bl bloodshed. 
So if anybody knows anything about labor history, they know that Haymarket, they at least know the the name Haymarket, right? I mean, Haymarket was a, a turning point in yeah. labor history. So Haymarket Square is where this rally happened, which is why we remember it as Haymarket now. Um, th- these workers were were angry um, about the police taking action against yep. them and and killing some of their members. So so our predecessors, union workers who were involved in a peaceful demonstration, and and yeah, it, when it's a peaceful demonstration, that doesn't mean that it's all kumbaya, right? Yeah, exactly. We're we're yelling and screaming about stuff, yeah. but it's but there's no violence, right? The cops see the tension between workers and employers, and yeah. and and they got they got kind of caught up in it and they killed people right they yeah. killed some demonstrators and so so we're mad about it and we hold a rally at haymarket to to demonstrate against what happened and and that went really wrong yeah um haymarket went really bad so um it's estimated um about a thousand people were there who knows um but it it got it got ugly yeah. um, right when the rally was kind of breaking up. Right there yeah. were there were speeches and and all that stuff. And and when the final speaker was finishing up, um, a, a bomb went off. Yeah, and it it killed at least one cop. Yeah, um, that's bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So almost immediately the 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 cops react. They open fire on the crowd. Yeah. Um. At least one unionist or one demonstrator died. Um, lots of people were were wounded. Eight of our folks, eight unionists, yeah. were arrested yeah. in in the following days and weeks. Um, they were arrested for the bombing, and they were put on trial very quickly. Um, very little investigation happened. They were put on trial. It was a kangaroo court type of thing. Yeah. And they were all convicted because there was anger. And let's face it, back then, uh, you know, a a jury of our peers, um, we didn't have peers. Yeah. Uh, on those juries, the 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 juries were made up of well-to-do folks, business business folks. So and, really, um, <laughs> yeah, against it, us. Yes, absolutely. In <laughs> this case, absolutely against us. So um, they were convicted and they were hanged for. Um, for bombing at this rally. That's crazy. So unfortunately, this was this was a turning point in the wrong direction for us, for our movement. So our intent was to demonstrate, was to take people off the job, to strike in favor of the eight-hour workday. And and I believe to this day that that this would have worked. Yeah, I think it would have had it not been for Haymarket. So a lot of unionists point to Haymarket and say, you know, this is uh, an example of union people laying down their lives for the cause. I don't necessarily see it that way. The the preceding event, I absolutely see that way. Yeah. When the cops shot four people who were peacefully demonstrating, those were folks who laid down their lives. But let's be honest about Haymarket. What happened at Haymarket was somebody on our side, somebody on the union side, set off a bomb and killed people. 
Yeah. That's the wrong way to go about getting what we need. Yeah. Um, and it set us back decades. Yeah. The eight-hour movement died at Haymarket, and it, it wasn't resurrected for a good 20 years. So that was a, that was a terrible moment in, in labor history no matter how you look yeah. at it, right? People died, and and the cause that we were working for, they died in vain, Yeah, right? Because the cause that they were fighting for did not come to fruition. Yeah. So bad, bad, bad. Um, fast forward to what's the next big event, um, the, the, the next big break for us in the eight-hour movement? The, uh, the Ford Motor Company. In 1926, the Ford Motor Company established a five-day, 40-hour work week for its workers. Yeah, um, and and Henry Ford, he kind of um, misrepresented that whole thing. What did he say? He has a famous quote, doesn't he? It is high time to rid ourselves of the notion that leisure for working men is either lost time or a class privilege. <laughs> so Ford... Gets out there and, and, and says, hey, I'm for the working man. But he also hated unions, correct? He sure did. Yeah. Um, he fought against unions all the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's credited with a lot of things that um, that were favorable for unions. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and even to this day, he's looked at as kind of a hero yeah. to, to working people. And, and that's just not the case. He didn't make any decisions that weren't the best thing for his business. Yeah, absolutely. He, the two big things that he's credited with are the 40 hour work week, yeah. which he did. That wasn't his idea. Um, and the, the $5 day. Yeah. Right. He was the first guy to pay five dollars a day to his workers because he wanted his workers to be able to buy the cars that they were making. Yeah. It was it was all about selling cars. Yeah. Right. It was about keeping his workers there because they were going to migrate to other companies yeah. and and selling them the cars that they were building. So um, so as far as the 40 hour work week goes, the eight hour work day it wasn't because he was for the working man and it's a it's high time that we establish this notion that um you know um that leisure time for working men is is not lost time that's that's baloney yeah no, um he didn't have an epiphany that you know workers are humans too right. yeah yeah exactly he did not no, because this, he this did research, research right yeah, what yeah. what did he what did he find in his research yeah so he spent a lot of money researching this and if you look at ford a lot of the advancements that they made were solely based on advancing the business and the happy little things that happened for workers that were benefits along the way were just a side effect it wasn't the primary goal so he was looking at productivity, and what his research showed him is that the company was losing productivity and money after eight hours of work. So by scaling back, he could actually make more money and also claim the victory of caring about his workers. Right. So this is where, this is where shift work was, was established, and he realized that um, paying two workers the same hourly wage— Yeah. Was just as palatable, right? Yeah. If if he could pay pay two people the same hourly wage for eight hours apiece, rather than one guy for sixteen hours, 
that was beneficial for him because he got more productivity out of yeah. two people than he did out of one. Yep, absolutely. So it, this was this was all about him making more money. Uh, so, you know, in 1926, CEOs were feeding us the same line of crap that they are today. Yep, not right? much has changed. I'm for you. I'm for you, and they're not for us. We talked about it last week about woke companies. And yeah, apparently Henry Ford was the first woke CEO. You know, he did a lot of different things. One of the things they did is they shipped parts in wooden crates that he could then disassemble the crates and use the wood planks for for, uh, floorboards in the vehicles. So (laughs) it's pretty ingenious. It sounds in in today's day and age, you think about, you know, being uh, environmentally conscious. Yeah. You know, reusing products. But back then, I mean, any way that he could pinch a penny to to increase his bottom line, he did. Yep. And listen, give him credit for being a, a. an ingenious businessman because he was he was that absolutely um but uh you know i i want to be perfectly honest about this listen the five dollar work day in at the time and the 40-hour work week were absolutely beneficial to workers without question it's what we wanted um but but the point is that there is there is recorded history and established documentation that Ford wasn't doing this for workers, yeah, no. right? So it's his statement that we take exception to, right? That that he loves working men and 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 that's why he was doing this. It's not why he was doing it. He was doing it for the for the better of the business, um, which I guess is fine. He was a brilliant businessman. He yeah, knew, he was. He knew how to make cars and he knew how to make money making cars. Yeah. So good for him. But um, but let's be honest about how it happened and why yeah. it happened. Yeah, he wasn't the patron saint of workers. No, he was not, not the patron saint of workers. No. Um, and again, he was under a ton of pressure. This was in in this was when the push from unions for the eight hour workday became really strong again, and he was relenting to that pressure because he had. Probably the biggest, most successful business in the country at the time, other than steel workers. Yeah. You know, steel companies were huge. Car companies were becoming huge. Um, and, and he knew that he needed to continue um, continue putting out cars, rolling cars off of that assembly line. Yeah, and being one of the biggest employers at the time, especially for, you know, hourly workers— that's what gave him the notoriety. He's he's remembered for these labor advances because he was in the hot seat at the time. It wasn't because yeah. he was fighting to advance workers' issues or trying to advocate to have like a, a more responsible workplace. It's just the the fact that he was in a position to bargain with the unions and the unions were the ones that were pushing these advancements. Yep. So I guess unfortunately, because it it, it took Ford to um, to really make other businesses turn their heads and say, okay, maybe the eight-hour workday isn't such a bad thing. And, you know, it, it, it relented all over the country. You know, the, the eight-hour workday was popping up all over the country um, in other businesses. So, you know, once again, big business in the United States ignored workers when they screamed and yelled and demanded this for their benefit, right, to live their lives. We were ignored, and when the genius Henry Ford did it, 
that's when other companies said, oh, okay, maybe we can do this. It's a good lesson that we need to remember. These companies aren't just going to go ahead and roll over and give you these things. These are things that you have to work towards and you have to demand. And you have to find ways that you're able to make what you're asking for make sense for the business as well. Like we've said in other episodes, we have to have a profitable business in order to be profitable on our end as well. Um, No question. Every advance is, is fought for. No question. And listen, we we had to continue to fight. Yeah. So it, it wasn't for another 14 years after Ford established that eight-hour workday at his company. It wasn't until 1940 that Congress passed an, an amended version of the Fair Labor Standards Act that limited the work week officially to 40 hours. Yeah. A five-day, 40-hour work week was established in law by Congress in 1940. So that's a long time to wait, right? It's a a long long time time for for some of our folks um, at smaller companies who were fighting, fighting, fighting for for the same things that everybody at Ford um, had for 14 years. If you're familiar with labor-themed music, you know who Joe Hill is, right? He was a Swedish-born American labor activist who lived back in the late 1800s into the 1900s. After years of, of underemployment and unemployment, moving around the country, he, he worked labor jobs all, all over the place. He joined the IWW, which, again, if you're familiar with the labor movement, you know what the IWW yep. is, the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies. He joined that union in 1910. He was already a fairly well-known cartoonist and songwriter, um, and, and then he brought those skills to the union. He became a prominent organizer for that union and used music and satire to recruit new members. On January 10, 1914, a former policeman by the name of John G. Morrison and his son were killed in their Salt Lake City grocery store by two armed and masked men. Joe Hill, who was working as a laborer at the Silver King Mine in Park City, Utah, showed up at a local hospital that same day with a gunshot wound which he claimed he suffered in an argument over a woman, right? He was the 13th person who eventually was arrested in the investigation of the murder of John G. Morrison and his son, but he was he was put to trial, yep. and, and he was convicted on really weak evidence, right? There was a lot of evidence that, that Hill's alibi was true, but he was still convicted, and, and he was executed by a firing squad on November 19th, 1915. And on the day of his execution, he wrote a letter to the IWW president, which included probably his most famous quote of all time, which was, don't waste time in mourning, organize. So to his dying breath, Joe Hill was an organizer for the, for the union. This song is called There's Power in a Union. It was frequently used by Hill to recruit union members in his, in his work doing that. And it was, it was performed spontaneously by onlookers during his execution at the Sugar House Prison in Utah. This rendition is actually performed by an unnamed group of musicians who showed up at Sugar House Park, which sits on the same location as the Sugar House Prison did. And it was during a memorial for Joe Hill. These folks just kind of spontaneously started performing the song, and it was recorded. So here's There's Power in a Union, originally written by Joe Hill. 
Would you have freedom from wage slavery and join in the grand industrial band? Would you from misery and hunger be free and come do your share like a man? There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land, one industrial union grand. Would you have sharing the gold in the sky and live in a shack away in the back? Would you have wings up in heaven to fly and starve here with rags on your back? There is power, there is power in the band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land when it comes to you in the land. If you've had enough of the blood of the lamb, then join in the grand industrial band. If for a change you would have eggs and ham, come do your share like a man. There is power, there is power in the band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land, one industrial union band. Well, if you like sluggers to beat off your head, then don't organize or you despise. If you are nothing before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look wise. There is power, there is power in the land of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land Oh come, oh ye workers from every land, join in the grand industrial band. Then we, our share of this earth, shall demand, come do your part like a man. There is power, there is power in the band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land, one industrial union man. Would you take contently what's put in your hand? Less than you burn with one leg to stand. Would you believe what they tell you to be? Or if brothers go out and see? There is power, there is power in the band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule every land. So let's talk about those programs. Let's start off with FARA, right? FARA stands for Future Attack Reconnaissance Aircraft. We are a sole source bidder in that competition. It's it's down to us and Bell Helicopter, right? Um, this is a, this is a tough competition. I know that there's been some talk in the news lately. I just read an article the other day um, where the Army is, you know, concerned with the the cost of that program and um, we, we hope that you know nothing goes wrong but they they certainly have been talking a little more than what we're comfortable with about that program but bottom line is right now it's alive and um, it's part of the army's future package so 
our aircraft that we're putting forward is what? What do we? What do we? The, uh- the Raider X aircraft that's based off of Sikorsky's X2 technology. Yeah, the um, so so and and we're going to talk about Flora later, but um, both of the aircraft in in these two programs that we're going to talk about are are based off of that X2 technology, and that X2 technology was groundbreaking, right? Yeah, they, they did that years ago. Sikorsky did that years ago and came up with this idea for. Um, a, a dual main rotor, right, with counter-rotating blades. And what that does is, and, and I think everybody at Sikorsky is at least a little bit familiar with the concept now, but what it does is it allows you to, to eliminate that tail rotor, right, the traditional tail rotor that a helicopter yeah. has. The, the purpose of a tail rotor is to stop the aircraft from spinning yeah. with, the, with the main rotor. So with the counter-rotating um, dual rotor head, you no longer have that problem. Um, and, and what we were able to do is put a pusher prop on the back of the aircraft, and so it's, it's a helicopter, but it's a damn fast helicopter, yeah. right? So that technology has been incorporated into these two programs, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, you can actually go on YouTube and pull up the video of when they broke the speed record, which is pretty cool. That's it's wild. pretty cool, yeah. I remember when that aircraft was actually brought up to Connecticut, and we were able to go see it in the plant. Um, And it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Sikorsky has won um, more than one Collier Awards, which is the the Collier Award is is the it's a it's a aviation award that's really prestigious. And and we've won it twice, I think. And one of the one of the victories was um, the X2. So the X2 won the Collier Trophy, which is, uh, again, pretty prestigious. It definitely seems like our company is the one that's always pushing the boundaries and trying to design products that are going to, you know, take things to the next level. Yep. Um, and you know, Bell thinks that they're they're pushing the boundaries. Um, I, I'm I'm not a fan of that V22 technology, which is that's their candidate for for this competition. Yep. Is um, it, it's called I don't know which one they're putting up they're putting up two aircraft for these two programs valor i know is one of them but oh yeah i'm sorry so it's invictus i just just looked that up invictus is the name of the aircraft that they're putting up for farah and and it's just another osprey right it's a smaller version of the osprey it's a tilt rotor um winged aircraft and um i just I don't know how you put that up in a competition f- for replacing helicopters. It's so, not a helicopter. So basically, we're putting up cutting-edge technology, and they're putting up old technology. Yep. Old technology that's already being phased out in the United States Marine Corps. So some of the benefits of the Raider X, it's obviously got increased maneuverability, having counter-rotating props uh, and the pusher prop in the back. Um, enhanced low-speed hover, off-axis hover, so you can hover at an angle. Um, That's amazing. That is amazing. Think about that, right? Yep. That that aircraft can hover at an angle. That's weird That's to me. I, I can't even I can't even picture that in my mind's eye. Yeah, and they can f- accelerate level. So you know, you're used to seeing as as a helicopter accelerates, the nose is kind of tipped down. Yeah, That's right. Yep. And with this aircraft, they can accelerate level and. Uh, they can pretty much break and stop forward flight without yeah. flaring as that, well. That pusher prop also can be reversed, and it can be a braking prop, right? Oh, wow. So it, it actually stops the aircraft from moving without that flare, um, which is super—I um, mean, that's that's really important, right, 
to the maneuverability and and um, landing that aircraft becomes much easier. Yeah, especially if you're trying to land on a small area like a you know a like a war zone, <laughs> a war zone or a ship at sea. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I don't know how. I I guess the 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 Bell the the Bell aircraft. I guess it 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 lands like a helicopter, right? I said I suppose. I don't know. Probably it's like a good the starting Osprey, point. It probably does. I don't work for Bell. I don't know what they do. <laughs> but yeah, really impressive technology. I I personally don't know how it doesn't win the competition, but um, I'm not an army general, so I don't make those decisions. But but yeah, it's got a lot of lot of cool stuff, and and that that program becomes really important to us as workers because we're the sole source bidder, right? right. So we're going to build everything just like yep. the Blackhawk, just like we did with that. Um, because in today's world, there's a lot of partnerships now on big programs like this. And, and in a minute, we'll talk about Flora, which we're partnered with Boeing on. But, but this one, we are not partnered with anyone on. So that's all our work, right? So that's really important for us. Even though there's not as many aircraft probably going to be built for FARA as opposed to Flora, um, we're going to build them all. So that's really important to talk about. Um, but let's talk about Flora because personally, I think Flora is the more important contract just just purely because of the size of the contract. It's 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 meant to replace the Blackhawk. There are literally thousands of Blackhawks flying around out there, and and so that's a big, big, big program. Yeah. Um, it's a more expensive aircraft. It's a larger aircraft. So, uh, you know, I, I think that just means more work for us, right? Yeah. So really important, again, FLARA, FLARA stands for Future Long Range Assault Aircraft. It's the Black Hawk replacement. Um, we are partnered with Boeing Aircraft on that. Uh, Defiant is our candidate for that program. Um, and it's it's really kind of the big brother of Raider, right? Right. And it's also uh, X2 technology as well. Yeah. So if you haven't had a chance, go online, Google this thing. It is amazing. It's amazing. You know what I was impressed with? So uh, I know that Rocco and, and a couple of the guys went down to Florida, and they actually got to see the aircraft. And we actually we published a photograph of Rocco and some folks standing in front of Defiant outside the hangar. And... That thing is huge. Wow, it's a beast. It the, and the rotor head alone, like I, I, I didn't realize how big that rotor head was. It's got twenty five percent more sling load capacity than a Blackhawk. Wow, and and I mean that's what Blackhawk was built for, right? It was built for for carrying troops and lifting equipment. Yeah. And so as it's a utility helicopter, but it's you know it, it's a strong helicopter, and to think that raid, uh, sorry, Defiant can can lift 25 percent more that's really impressive and it's still got all the added benefits of the raider x technology so you know it's got a lot of commonality between its little brother so to speak um it's twice as fast has twice the range of the black hawk and it can operate in the same physical space as a black hawk so that's really important same landing zones uh same hangar and maintenance space same parking pads and tie downs so 
when you think about again integrating into existing infrastructure that the army has, this is a huge cost yeah. savings. Yeah, the the army calls it, or the the military really calls it switching costs. Yep. Right when when they when they talk about the cost of a program, they calculate in the cost to switch from one program to another. Right. Yeah. The physical cost of switching from one program to another. The our our aircraft defiant really reduces that switching cost. Yep. You talk about that it is it's the same footprint as a Blackhawk. It's a larger aircraft than a Blackhawk, but the blades don't extend as far. It's a rigid blade rotor head, so yep. it so the blades don't extend out as far as a Blackhawk. So the larger fuselage um, it still fits into the same footprint as a Blackhawk. Awesome. So again, like Jason said, same hangers same tie downs on on the flight line same maintenance facilities everything's the same right that's same landing zone when you're when you're talking about going into a war zone it's the same landing zone that's really important for for pilots for for you know soldiers to think about sounds like a really good selling point it really does And, and that was done on purpose right that wasn't it wasn't like we went oh Wow, this is kind of cool. It fits in the same spot. That was a, a purposeful design um, of the aircraft to, to make sure that it would fit in the same space. That, I think, makes it hard for another company to come in and compete, too, because as we lower yeah. the switching cost, they have to already compete with the fact that there is a switching cost to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have a built-in advantage. You know, the other thing you think about, too, is hopefully we get these products um, – these contracts awarded and then it you know you look forward to what are we going to produce next yeah i mean this 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 has you know such implications for the future right i think these two aircraft raider and defiant they they change helicopters right they change rotary craft forever yeah and the face of our military yeah the way that we conduct operations yeah and our allies you know you think about other countries that are trying to sign on and buy the 53k for instance you know israel bought 12 of them at the end of 2021 not to go backwards but yeah yeah i'm i'm trying to look up and i'm i'm having trouble finding it do either of you know how fast um defiant is i i want to say 280 knots i was gonna say something like 250 maybe um and and the reason i bring that up is the, the selling point that I think the Bell aircraft has is speed and its top speed is 300 knots. So, so to sacrifice everything else for 50 extra knots, I'm not sure if that's enough, right? It, because it cannot land like a helicopter. It, you know, they say it can, but it can't, it cannot come in at a high speed and and stop and land right the way that aircraft works is a is a a a slow methodical slowdown to to transition into vertical flight and then drop down it's not the same so um when you know when you're talking about the the critical part of a mission right which is getting down on the ground leaving what you need to leave and getting back up in the air I, i don't think there's any comparison to our product Right. I mean, it's going to do 250 knots. It's going to get there pretty quick um, and it's going to get down on the ground, drop its payload and get back off the ground real fast. I'm finding 220 knots. 
220. Yeah, the Raider does 250. Okay, Raider does 250. Um, but, but like you said, I think you know you get to a point where the additional speed is only so valuable. Right. Like having that maneuverability and the ability to get in and out of places, tight places, you know, in a yeah. war zone, that's critical. That's what a helicopter does, right? right. That's, that's what a vertical lift aircraft does. And I think that's the difference between next generation aircraft versus you know more of the same by Bell. Yeah. So so these programs, right? Fara and Flara, and and you know we could talk about them all day long it's it's really really important to understand how critical these programs are to our future right Th- these two programs winning these two programs are are what's going to keep people working at Sikorsky aircraft at at the levels that we're at now right um i don't know what the impact of losing them is going to be uh, but certainly there would be an impact right there there's certainly uh, uh, an implication towards employment levels if we lose these programs, because quite frankly, we're gearing up to try to transition into these programs as well. And, and I don't think with Blackhawk going away, and Blackhawk is done in 2028. Yeah, that's not far off. No, yeah. once these programs are gone, it, they're hard to get back. It's hard to to restart production, um, and that's why it also makes it more important that we do get selected because. That keeps us designing the best products for tomorrow. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of the stuff I'm reading about, so when you when you talk about programs like this, there's a lot of mention, and, and I didn't understand it when I first started reading, but, but I do understand it now. They talk about the industrial base, right? And there's a lot of talk about the industrial base. And, and right now, Sikorsky Aircraft and Boeing Aircraft are the industrial base for rotary wing aircraft. The Army doesn't buy helicopters from any other companies. It's Boeing and Sikorsky, and that's yeah. it, right? So so we lose these programs. The, the industrial base for rotary wing aircraft go, goes away yeah. for the U.S. Army, right? If our, if our assembly lines stop, like you said, Jason, they're nearly impossible to restart, right? Yeah. Because... Assembly lines stop. You lay off the people that work those assembly lines. Yeah. How do you get that back? Right. And you lose that generational knowledge that you get from yeah, you people, you know, being trained within the factory and learning, you know, how to build these things. It's not, you know, just put A next to B and screw together. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so much tribal knowledge in that place. Right. Yeah. And and like you said, we lose that. Um, so we're we're entering the last multi-year contract for H60. That blows my mind. Yeah, I I came to work here. I, I think we were we were less than a thousand aircraft into the Blackhawk contract, and we've built thousands of them now. Um, and and, and it's going to be gone right within within my career. We're going to stop building those aircraft. Yeah. So. The, the people are coming behind me and behind even behind you guys, right? We need these programs to sustain employment at this company at the levels we're at. Yes, right? we do. I don't I don't think with the K here, I don't think this company dies, right? But um but but certainly we need these programs to sustain high levels of employment. So for both of these programs, Bell is our competition. Right. Um, they they are 
a helicopter manufacturer, but they don't produce any military helicopters, right? They're a civilian helicopter company, essentially. They they have a piece in the V-22 Osprey, that tilt rotor aircraft, right, that the Marines operate. Um, and that's it, right? So that's their offering in both of these programs, Invictus and Valor for the, the two programs, respectively. And they're both tilt rotor aircraft. Um, one is a little bit bigger than the other. They're just mini versions of the Osprey. And, and they're, they're not helicopters. Um, and, and that's all I can say about that, yeah. right? I, it's all I keep saying is they're, they're not helicopters. They operate with a different footprint. Um, you know, when we talk about that switching cost, the Army's going to have to invest in, you know, new flight field, new, new hangars, new maintenance facilities, right? All kinds of stuff that, that they're going to have to um, change with these aircraft. I think that's for us the biggest selling point. Yeah, I think they'd rather have the ability to just buy more aircraft with that money than to have to, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly, retool their existing. Yeah. And I honestly don't know the um, the cost difference between our offering and Bell's offerings. Uh, I, I don't know what that is. I'm sure that that is a factor in in what the Army is is considering. But at the end of the day, in 2004 when the army conceptualized future vertical lift it was defined as a helicopter program yeah right we're giving them helicopters yep and one company won a collier award and yeah broke <laughs> yeah. the speed record for yeah. the fastest helicopter in the world yeah. so <laughs> so if you like helicopters army yeah yes. we're the company to go with absolutely yeah. so what does our future look like how do we sustain or or even grow our numbers um, and, and most importantly, what are the issues that we're facing today that threaten us? The first one that comes to my mind is the war on workers. That's what we call it. I have signs all over my office, um, you know, the stop the war on workers. Um, there is and, and has been for decades a war being waged on workers and, and on workers' ability to form and join a union in order to have a voice in their workplace. Yep. Um, and and this war, quite frankly, is being perpetuated by big business. Yep. It's funded by big business. It's funded by their bosses um, and their supporters who have deep pockets and, and who have the resources to have their message heard, right? They have more resources and more money than we do, right? They have an, It's easier for them to wage this war than it is for us to defend against it. So, um, so how do we do that? organizing our co-workers even when you're already in a union yeah and and that's a good point Vinny. and internal organization is a really important thing for unions to understand right yeah we're organized um but we know it here right local 1150 is a big union yeah and and there are there are lots of great active union members um and then there are those who are not Right. Who who are not great union members. And when I say they're not great union members, I don't mean, you know, you don't come to a meeting and you don't get involved. I mean, um, well, let's be frank. Right. You're you're ratting out your co-workers. Yep. You're, you're not you're not supporting your co-workers. You're not advancing um, our cause. Yeah. You're perpetuating rumors on the shop floor that aren't true. Yeah, that's that's bad stuff, right? That doesn't help us. It doesn't yeah, help you as an individual. If you want to think as an individual, that kind of thing is not helping you as an individual at all. 
Yeah. The other one I'll point out is people that just blatantly walk by and say nothing about, you know, contract violations. You see a foreman that's, you know, performing work on an aircraft. You got to call for a steward. Yep. That's not a choice. You have to do it. Yep. Another thing is not backing up your coworkers when they have a steward for a contract violation and you saw the violation and just, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to be involved in this. Yep. Yeah. And, and remember, you know, that's a good point, Vin, because nobody, uh, not, not anybody intelligent, goes down to the <laughs> shop floor and says, let me go bother every hourly person today. So typically, you know, you'll see that, you know, one guy gets annoyed by a, a foreman today. The next guy, the foreman's annoying somebody yep. else. Well, if you don't speak up for your coworker, then you know they don't have the support they need. You need to be a witness for that guy, and you need to make sure that the foreman's aware. You know, there's other ears in the area. You can't just have a free for all. Exactly. And 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 listen, this advances our cause, right? Doing things like that shows solidarity, and it it does keep the employer at bay, right? It makes sure that that they're not going to do that stuff anymore, right? They're not going to be really inclined to do that stuff if they know they're going to they're going to encounter resistance every time they do, right? Yep. Sticking together is what it's all about. That's what unions are. A- absolutely. You know, we didn't talk about it. I I didn't bring it up before, but I want to emphasize what Steve said before. When you're on the card, when you make a steward request, you're protected. Um, that is the big benefit to a union. You might be someone who thinks, you know, I'm a well-spoken person. I can handle myself and yeah. I'll say what I need to say to the foreman or I'll give them a piece of my mind. Well, do yourself a favor, raise your hand, call for a steward, use the fact that you paid your dues and do it in a protected fashion. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. Uh, it's really about you, you can't go it you can't go it alone and if you say the wrong thing it could get you in trouble at bare minimum your steward is going to have you know more knowledge of other cases of the same thing going on in your area and that's important for just cause that's important for you know having a fair and equitable environment yep so really good point Vinny right internal organizing um you, you know back to back to this the the message of the war on workers right they the problem with the war that they're waging on us is that it's chock full of lies, right? Yes, exactly. All, all of the things they talk about are are untrue. And generally speaking, they make claims that unions are bad for business. And and that's not true, right? They they believe it because, you know, unions drive increases in wages and benefits and, and provide workers with a voice um, to affect change in their workplace. And... and and they say that's bad, right? They don't want change based on workers' needs. They want they want to create their own change, right? Yes, they, exactly. They, business wants control. They want control over everything. And and I guess you can understand that, right? Um, but to say that unions are bad for business is just n- not true. It's just it's just a lie because increased wages and benefits and having a voice on the shop floor proves. When workers are happy, they're more productive, which makes for a better business. And there's actually proof out there, right? Studies have been done that that actually prove that yes. unionized businesses are more productive. There have been productivity studies that bear this out, right? That time and time again, the, these studies have concluded that unionized companies are among the most productive companies in the country. Yeah, as a steward, you're not just fighting for your member. You're mediating on behalf of the member. Yes. You're trying to work towards a solution. And you're 
allowing a conversation to take place in a union environment that probably wouldn't take place in a non-union shop. Um, so that person in a non-union shop is going to take that home. They're going to fester over it. They're going to be annoyed over it. And for months and months and months, they're probably going to have it eaten away at them. Whereas in this you know, environment, you can go in, call for a steward, you're protected, you get it off your chest, and hopefully you fix the issue. Yep, exactly. Yep. And, and listen, that's a relinquishing of control. Uh, on the company's part, they, that's what they don't like. You know, we're, we're talking about this. They don't like two things, higher wages and costly benefits and losing control, Yes, losing ultimate control. And, and listen, business is still, they control it, right? The business still controls the business. Yeah, they exactly. still run the business, but those day-to-day, um, you know, decisions that, that, that have to be made sometimes, the union does have a little bit of a say in it through a grievance procedure, right, yes. through that protected process. And they don't like that. We see examples of that every day as stewards, right? Yes. We see how the company, you know, they they take on a fighting posture when we question their decisions. Yeah, I can't even imagine how many times they would just tell you to shut up and go back yeah. to work if if you weren't legally required to bargain. Let's oh, yeah. face it, a workplace shouldn't be a complete dictatorship. The workers should have some say over what goes on. Yeah. So um, th- this war, it's fought in different ways, right? And and obviously at different levels of intensity, depending on where you are. Uh, we, we talk a lot about what's happening at Starbucks and, you know, the anti-union tactics that that company uses to stave off organizing campaigns now that are popping up all over the country. Um, you know, things like email and, and texts to their, to their workers, um, signs all over the workplace, captive audience meetings, you know, all of these things are tactics that, that companies use. They use their, their money and their resources. The, you know, the text and email stuff really bugs me because they use company records and they, they take your phone number and they send you a, a text message in the middle of the night yeah. telling you to not to you know to vote against the union. Basically beat you over the head with it. Now relentlessly. they're they're bombarding them now with Facebook and Instagram ads. Yeah. So oh. you know, everybody always cringes when you say, Oh, my phone's listening to me. And now it's never been more in your face, even if you're on break or at home exactly. and you're scrolling through Instagram. There yeah. it is. You kind of I guess they should expect it in the workplace. Um, but even, you know, these folks walk into the cafeteria on the job or or walk up to the urinal and, you know, you're staring at a poster that says, you know, here's why you should vote against the union. You, you, you can't even use the bathroom without being bombarded with this stuff. So, you know, they're using all these tactics, um, you know, but but Starbucks, <laughs> Starbucks, as bad as we say they are, they're actually not even taking it to the level that some other companies. No, do. I agree. You know, I love to talk about Walmart. I'm a I'm a Walmart hater. And, Me too. And Walmart, they they take it to the ultimate level, in my opinion. Yes. They have actually closed entire stores because of an organizing drive. Yep. Um, I recall one. Um, it, it was several years ago now. I believe it was up in Alaska that they had a, a Walmart store where four or five meat cutters voted to join a union. Four or five people. And they, they went voted vegan. to join a union. They closed the entire store. <laughs> they and they all went vegan. They all, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they right? voted to go vegan. <laughs> but but they 
four people joined a union and they closed an entire store. That's they insane. They put hundreds of people out of work to avoid four people joining a union. Yeah, and you can tell that wasn't just about that store. You know, they'll burn the cost of that store to prevent, you know, what they view as a cancer spreading throughout their entire Exactly, exactly. and that's my point. This is not, it's not about money, yeah. right? They will spend 10 times the money that it would cost them to 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 have a union in their store. They will spend 10 times that amount of money to to avoid it. Yep. So that they can maintain full control. Now, for 49 straight years, uh, Walmart has given investors dividends, and they pay their CEO $22.6 million. So insane. But then you look at the fact that uh, Walmart workers are the biggest recipients of food stamps and Medicare in most states. So a company that made $13.7 billion in annual profit uh, they have $573 billion in revenue. They're paying out their investors. They're paying their CEO. But we're paying for yep. their benefits. We're paying for their food stamps yep. in the form of our taxes. Yeah. We're subsidizing their crummy wages and their crummy benefits. Yeah. And, and I say this all the time, and if you don't believe me, my suggestion is go apply for a job at Walmart and and get the job and go through the onboarding process. Then you can quit, right? But if you don't believe what I've been saying for years about Walmart, go through the process. Part of Walmart's onboarding process of new employees is to provide information to their new employees on how to get public assistance and food stamps. Oh, yeah. It's part of their onboarding process. Right. So they know systemically they know how crappy those jobs yep. are and they tell their employees how to get more money. Yeah. How about you ever hear of the employee uh, organized food drives for certain members with oh, low God. hours? No. So they actually, you know, within stores, try and employees try to help each other. Um, it'd probably be more effective forming a union. But exactly. They're literally doing collections, just trying to get by for, you know, basic needs. Yeah, it, it's hideous. And and listen, these companies know, right, this is part of the war, right? All of this is part of the war on workers. Um, and, and nobody wages that war better than Walmart. You um, think about people being food insecure in a, a superstore filled with food. Yes, I'm an employee, right? I'm an employee of, first of all, the largest employer in the country who sells food on a daily basis and you're food insecure. It's, I guess that's the definition of insanity. Um, And these companies are not just fighting this war um, in the public arena. They're not fighting it against their own employees but they're they're fighting it in the political arena too and they're all crying poor at the same time <laughs> yeah That's which is the best insane way. yeah they're, when you look at these big companies and you look at their profits it's yeah. just insane and what I, they pay their ceos it's well they crazy. need that they need that extra money so that they can you know that they can spend by millions stock. electing politicians exactly. who are going to support exactly. their anti-union uh you know support anti-union legislation like right to work and and you know other legislation like that that makes it harder for for those workers that they employ to organize and join the union yeah and all they do is buy back stock which you know all they're all they're concerned with is driving up the stock price because a lot of their incentives are tied to the stock price yep and to stop the pro act things that are going to further uh and make it easier for people to unionize yeah um 
Yeah, message to Joe Biden. When you're done with Ukraine, can you pass the PRO Act, please? Yes, I agree. So what can we do, right? We have all these issues um, that we're facing. What can we do? Uh, and, and I think it's a perfect time to talk about this because, again, the, the Sean O'Brien administration was just sworn in at, at the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and, and Sean ran and won on a campaign of a more militant union. Yes. He used the word strike throughout his campaign, right? And and I know that people are afraid of that word. People, workers are afraid of striking, right? It's scary. Um but but we need to use that weapon, right? Yes, we I do. Preach it all the time. It is our only weapon to withhold our labor. Is our only weapon against an unfair employer, and we need to be willing to use it. Yep. Yes, we need to be respectful of the damage that it can do, but we need to use that weapon. So we need to strike when it's appropriate. Um, you know, strikes, especially public strikes, they advertise the power that we have. Yeah. When we win a strike, we send a message to to everybody, to all the workers out there who are maybe even thinking about joining a union, that we send the message that unions work, right? When we win a strike, that message is sent loud and clear. Yes, it is. You better believe it. It's not a coincidence that this Starbucks thing is happening in the United States right after um, John Deere yeah. and, um, uh, you know, what was what were the Kellogg's? Yes, right? Kellogg's. The, these these companies that went on strike, Frito Lay. Yeah. Um, all of these these big public strikes happened, and right after that, the Starbucks workers said, "Yeah, me too." It's yeah. the new Me Too movement. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all striking over the same reasons. Exactly. It doesn't matter yeah. what company it is. It's all about stock buybacks, extended working hours, poor working conditions, yep. low yes. wages, and shitty benefits. Yep. yep. So. Um, you know, our success as established unions, our success sends the message to those workers that your voice is important. It should be heard. And 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 quite frankly, it can make change. Right. So um, we can also be more politically active. I don't know if the Teamsters could possibly be more politically active than they already are. Yeah. Teamsters are a really politically active union. Um, uh, but, you know, we need to be more politically active, I think. Personally, we need to get more politically active on the local level. I agree. Um, we're really good at the national stuff, yeah. right? But I, I don't think we're great at the at the local stuff. Yeah, we do need to get more active locally. Yeah, and so, I think it's important to look at politics from the lens of you know what's going to put food on my plate, what's going to support my family. Yep. You might we're never going to always agree a hundred percent with the true. politicians that we have to support. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to pick the one that's going to benefit us most. Yeah. yeah. Um, so political action, I think is really important. Um, I just want to throw something out there, especially on the local level here in Connecticut before the state legislature, uh, there's a bill that would, I don't know if it, out, uh, it would completely ban, but it's going to put a hurting on captive audience meetings where these companies force people into a room to basically bombard them with anti-union rhetoric until they, you know, submit to voting against the union. So. Yeah, and 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 that's awesome that Connecticut's doing that, and I think I think the federal government should be looking at that. Well, the the Pro Act does that, right? Yes. So the yes, the does. Pro Act would would outlaw those kinds of meetings as well. So again, did I mention uh, President Biden? Can you please pass the Pro Act? Um, <laughs> uh, please. 
So, but that's what, listen, that's what we have to put our resources into, right? We have to put money into local politics to get that kind of stuff done. Yes. Right. So, so let's do that. Um, so that's it, right? We're, we, we kind of, you know, put some thoughts into people's heads, I hope, um, about what our future looks like and how we can change our future because we can. Um, so talk to your union leadership, please. That's how unions work. Talk to your union leadership about what your ideas are uh, as to how we can how we can advance the labor movement. And, and that stuff kind of goes up the ladder, right? And it eventually lands on Sean O'Brien's desk. Yes. Yep. But you can never strike with a weak membership. So you got to right. remember to always be ready to strike. And if you're not right. ready, then the threat isn't real. Yes. So I say if you're not ready, get ready. You know, we're blessed that we work in a, a place where people have 30, 40, 45 year careers. Uh, we have people, I looked at the seniority list the other day that started in the late 70s. So you look at you look back at the strike. I wasn't here then, but in 2006, you guys were out for what six weeks. Yep. So I don't mean to minimize how the pain that we feel during a strike, but six weeks out of a 45 year career is not worth being a scab for life. Uh, I, I agree. I, I I can tell you that 100. percent Listen, the the strike was painful in the moment, right? I'm not going to lie. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. the The strike was painful. Um, my wife wasn't working at the time. Uh, it, we, we were in a, a single family home with two kids and, um, bills to pay. And I, I didn't earn a paycheck for six weeks and that was painful. But, but to your point, Jason, I, I don't, I'm not feeling that pain today. Right. We're what? 16 years past. Yeah. And, yeah, something like and that. I, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Right. You can always get through a temporary hard time. Yeah. 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 No question about what it. you can't get through is a lifetime of being underpaid because you're not willing to stand up for yourself. Uh, That's t- right. I totally agree. And and listen, the the stuff that we should be striking over, if we don't strike over it and we don't overcome it, then it becomes habit for the company. Right. They they so they take a piece, they take a chunk of flesh this time. And if we don't fight it, they take another chunk next time. And that chunk's bigger. So, yeah. um, you know, it is definitely a domino effect. So we hope you enjoyed that little best of show. As always, we appreciate you downloading. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate you following us. If you're not following the 10 to 12 podcast, shame on you. Go to Podbean and follow us today. Tell us what you like about our show. Tell us what you hate about our show. Shoot us an email at comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. Until next time, I'm Stephen French.